Hey, good morning, Faith Family. It's good to see you. I can tell by your singing this morning, you're ready to get after it, aren't you? You're ready to do this. All right, go to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 will be our passage this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are so glad that you're here. Uh, We're doing a series that we've called Mixtape. You're probably familiar with the old school mixtape. It's when we put a whole bunch of songs together. And uh, we're talking about how the book of Psalms really is a mixtape. God has given us some songs to sing uh, in a lot of different seasons of life, and we need to understand these, put them on our mixtape so that when we face different experiences, we've got a song to sing. And uh, Psalm 8 is like the greatest hits album. I mean, this is an incredible psalm, and um, if you've ever read it before or know much about it, you know that it really is just a mind-blowing Psalm. So let's look at it this morning as we talk about a song of glory, Psalm 8. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. I ain't even started and I'm already excited. This is the Word of God to us this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I know that we are not here uh, just to hear a man speak. We are here to encounter the one true and living God. So Holy Spirit, come and meet us here through your word. God, would you take these words, would you take this message and give us an encounter with you. May we sing a song of glory in our lives this morning as a result of meeting you at your word. I ask it to the glory of Jesus and in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Are people really that dumb? Are they? I mean, that tends to be the thought that goes through my mind when I watch those uh, man on the street interviews, you know, with like the late night talk show host. And they go out and they, they ask like random people these questions about history and geography and U.S. presidents and current events and, and the answers that these people give. I mean, they're funny. But at the same time, it's, it's a little bit, like, depressing, you know? It like, makes you really wonder about our educational system. Like, somebody was asked one time, what language do they speak in Britain? And the person responded, British. You just think about that. Yeah, the British language, sometimes called English. Or they were asked one time, who was it that landed on the moon? And, and the person said, what, wasn't their name like Armstrong? But, that's right. Do you remember his, his first name? Wasn't it Louis? <laughs> I mean, yeah, Louis Armstrong, the first person that landed on the moon. 
They were asked, can you name a Supreme Court justice? And I'm not making this up. They said, Judge Judy? (laughs) They were asked, what is the opening line of the Bible? It's kind of scary. They said, in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) I mean, there are all kinds of answers that these people give, but my favorite My absolute favorite happened on an episode of Jaywalking. Do you remember when Jay Leno was hosting The Tonight Show and he would do a bit of jaywalking? He'd go out and interview people and he asked this lady, how did Mount Rushmore come into existence? You could see see the gerbils running, you know, she's she's contemplating it and she goes, erosion? (laughs) Erosion? You mean to tell me that you think wind and water over time formed in the side of a mountain four faces? Oh, no, 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 no. Not just four faces, four recognizable faces. Oh, no, 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 no. Not just four recognizable faces, four faces of U.S. presidents. And not just four faces of U.S. presidents, four of the most famous presidents in our history. How in the world do you account for that? She said, I don't know. Luck, I guess. (laughs) Now, I don't even have the words. I don't even have the words to explain how that can even happen. Because you and I know that when you stand before Mount Rushmore, it is so obvious that there is a creator It's so obvious, at least to most people. How much more when you and I don't just look at Mount Rushmore, but we look at all the creation, we look at everything around us, the glory of a creator is obvious. It's why Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies, they are proclaiming, they are screaming His handiwork. It's why Paul says in Romans 1 that His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. How many of us in our busy lives, in our crazy schedules, and getting our kids to this and to that, have lost our sense of wonder. When is the last time that you've, you've looked at the creation and you've just been in awe? You have been speechless at the majesty of God. That's exactly what's happening to David in Psalm 8. He takes a little break from shepherding his flock. He stares up into the night sky. He sees the moon. He sees the stars. And he's speechless. His jaw has hit the ground. And all he can utter, all he can say is, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How did he get there? Because he started by considering the heavens that God created. Look at verse 3. When I looked at your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the the moon and the stars which you have set in place. You see it also at the end of verse 1. You've set your glory above the heavens. He stops and he looks above and he contemplates and he considers and he meditates on what he sees. And here's what's amazing. He didn't even have a telescope. There was no NASA. He doesn't even he doesn't even have half of the understanding that we do today of the heavens. Let's do today what David did. Let's consider the heavens together. Do you realize that our universe is so enormous that we measure it with a thing called light years? That is light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Translation, 671 million miles per hour. That's faster than your Ford Taurus or Dodge Stratus, or whatever you drive. I mean, that's how we measure things. So think just, for instance, of planet Earth. 25,000 miles is planet Earth, which means light traveling at 186,000 miles per second goes in one second about seven to eight times around the Earth. Let's try a little test. You ready? Watch for it. Got your eyes open? Ready? One. Did you see it? Did you see light blazing by you about seven or eight times in that one second? But now let's expand it out a little bit more. To go to, our, to the sun, the distance from the sun to the earth is only 93 million miles. Just a little bit. And we're glad that it's 93 million miles away because if we were much closer, we would burn And yet, light travels from the sun to earth in eight minutes. But our sun, the sun isn't even the brightest star. If we just went with the 17th brightest star in our galaxy, light particles leaving that star get to us in 550 years. Let me put that in perspective. Light particles that left that star on October the 31st, 1517, which is what we know as the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, those light particles aren't even here yet. But now expand it out even more. Think about, for instance, our galaxy. We live in the Milky Way galaxy. Can you imagine the fact that to get from the sun to the center of our galaxy would take you 33,000 years? If you were to count the 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, one per second, it would take you 25,000 years to count them all just to travel from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other, this is amazing, is estimated 100,000 light years. Are you wrapping your mind around this? That means if you were traveling 186,000 miles per second, it'd take you 100,000 years to get to one end to the other. How majestic is His name in all the earth. But that's just one galaxy. You realize there's an estimated about 100 billion galaxies? Do you see that picture? Those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. Anybody looking for a last-minute family vacation before summer's out? (laughs) 
Anybody? Okay. You want to travel to another galaxy? It's only going to take you two million years to get to the closest one. If you want to go all the way and really have a nice family vacay, and you want to go to the outer edge of the universe, it's only going to take you 20 billion years. And I don't know about your kids, but with my kids, that's a whole lot of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I mean, just put all this into perspective. Put into your mind all of North America. You got it? Is it in your mind? Are you thinking about how big North America is? Well, then just our galaxy in, if that's the entire universe, then our galaxy alone is this golf ball. And if this is our galaxy, then planet Earth is that little dot right there on the golf ball. And you're like, Pastor, can I ask a question? Sure, you can ask a question. Where's my house? Where's my school? You're not even on the map. You can't even see you from here. We are like those people living on the flower in Horton Here's a Who, right? And you say, well, why are you telling us all this stuff? Because how majestic is his name in all the earth? Don't you understand that these things are screaming, our God is big, our God is awesome, our God is massive. However big you think he is, he's a whole lot bigger. How majestic is your name in all the earth. David considers the heavens, the moons, the stars, and he's in awe. In fact, he says that God did it with his fingers. I think it was his pinky. God did... like. We can't even get our minds around that, much less get our minds around God. And your response this morning, if you're paying attention at all, had better be worship. Because when you get a vision of who God is, and when your mind is blown away at to how big God is, it's going to change the way you pray. It's going to change the way you approach the Word of God. It's going to change the way you approach life because all of a sudden you're going to begin to see life in right perspective. Namely, you're not that big and He's really big. That's where David's at in Psalm 8. How majestic is your name. But listen, To David, that's not the most amazing part. It gets even more amazing. Look at verse 4. He says, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? He gets it, doesn't he? David gets it. The, The implication of understanding God this way is to realize how small you really are. You say, but this makes me feel small. No, it's just showing that you really are small. I mean, you're teeny tiny, itsy bitsy, little bitty, tiny. And and see, your response when you really consider the heavens isn't, I I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. I'm the divisional manager at Target. I got all-state awards for wrestling. My 401k is fully funded Nobody's boasting about anything in their life when they realize how big God is. 
David is like, what is man? Like, how could you even think about me? Of all these billions of stars, of all this glory of your creation, what am I? Who am I? By the way, the best medicine for your prideful heart is meditating on the glory of God. Because it's going to be really hard to boast about yourself when you see how big God is. That was free, by the way. And you say, this doesn't sound amazing. I thought you said it was going to get more amazing. Telling me how small and little and teeny tiny I am doesn't really make me feel amazed. Read the rest of the verse. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You ready to have your minds blown? Here's what makes David's mind explode. When I realize how big God is, I naturally realize how small I am. So how absolutely astonishing is it that He loves me? Why would He even care? Who am I in the universe but nothing, and yet God cares unbelievably and amazingly about my life. That ever kept you up at night? Have you ever been so in awe of God like this, that in realizing how small you are, you also understand how significant you are to God? It's absolutely mind-blowing. The amazing love that God would have for us. And how does David get to this point? He reflects on Genesis 1. See, if you've heard this language before, if you've even like read the first page of the Bible, in Psalm 8 when it says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's verse 5. By the way, time out. To the scholars in the room, I don't have time to debate the use of Elohim here. Some translations will say lower than the angels. Some will say lower than God. I think given Genesis 1 is the background, the right translation is he was made a little lower than God. Because in the order of things in Genesis, that's where man was created. It means he was human. He was made lower than God. And what was he? Crowned with glory and honor. And given dominion, verse 6, over the work of your hands. So here's what David, here's his, what's going through his mind. You tracking with me? Man, when I look at the heavens, I'm just in awe of the glory of God. And I realize how small I am, but then it hits me. When I think of Genesis 1, that God placed on me His image and has given me dominion over His creation. That's amazing. Which means two very important things for us. Number one is that we have to understand the significance of humanity. I need all eyes right here for just a moment. Because if you don't get anything, I want you to get this today. I hope you get some other stuff too, but I want you to get this right here. You matter to God. You matter. 
Red, yellow, black, and white, you are precious in His sight. I don't care what your waistline is. I don't care what you see in the mirror. I don't care what you did in algebra. I don't care about how much is in your bank account. You are someone of enormous value to God. Now, don't panic. I didn't eat my Joel Osteen cereal this morning, okay? Some of you are getting that, right? And here's why. Here's why. Because the significance that I'm talking about isn't a self-centered, self-esteem, egocentric significance. It's the fact that you're significant because you were created in God's image. You're not significant because of what's within you. You're significant because of the one who created you. That's why you matter. Humanity, Genesis, unlike anything else in all of creation, the billions of stars, the sea, the animals, humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. It means you matter. It means you absolutely matter. How majestic is His name in all the earth? My mind can't take anymore. But do you see this in the Somali family that lives next door to you? What about the homosexual that bags your groceries at Cub Food? What about the single mom in your neighborhood who has four children from four different men? You say, well, but they need to repent. So do you. My point is, Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 is not talking about saving grace that is only found in Jesus. It's talking about common grace that recognizes all of humanity as image bearers. And that has implications for how you live. And it's mind-blowing. Take, for instance, this one application. How do you talk about people? Do you ever gossip? Do you ever run people down? At your high school cafeteria, do you ever slander anyone? Let me tell you what James says about that in James 3. And notice his argument. This is amazing. James 3 verse 8 says, No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people uh who are made in the likeness of God. Gossip isn't a problem because it's socially rude. Slander isn't a problem because it's relationally impolite. Those things are sin because it's an offense to the image of God. I had a dear lady come to me after the first service and she said, that point has totally changed the way I think about people. You're talking to an image bearer, albeit broken, and as sinful as they may be, they are nevertheless created just like you in the image of God. It matters not their skin color. It matters not the language that they speak. It matters not anything. They are human. 
Let me tell you what other implications there are quickly. I need three hours, folks. This is like, I told you, this is like a greatest hit song. There is so, the ripple effect of really thinking through this in real life is profound. But let me give you one more, and I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm preaching the text in this culture. We have been hearing language over the last few weeks of the crushing of human life in the womb. That's a God issue. That's an image bearer. It's why that's not a social issue. It's a theological issue. It's the same with racism. That's a God issue. You're talking about human beings created in the image of God. And I'll give you one more while I'm ruffling the feathers. Here's the other one. Would you, if you're here and you're agnostic, maybe you're just checking out Christianity, you're not sure about all this, I am so glad you're here, so glad you're here, but I want to give you something to think about, and you need to be intellectually consistent. You need to think through what the implications are of believing that man came through evolution and purely by chance. Let me tell you what just one, and if we had three hours, I'd give you more. Let me just tell you what one person wrote. His name is Steven Pinker. He's from Harvard. He would completely deny creationism. He's more of a humanist. But at least he's intellectually consistent. He wrote in his book, how's this for a title? The Stupidity of Dignity. And here's what he says. Because he carries the evolutionary thought to its logical conclusion, and here's what he says. The problem is that dignity is squishy. It's a subjective notion, hardly up to the heavyweight moral demands assigned to it. Do you understand if you're going to be intellectually consistent that if you take God out of the equation, you take significance out of man? Because the reason you're so significant is you bear the image of your Creator. David is blown away at the majesty of God when he thinks about God in creation, and when he thinks about the significance of man before God. But that's not all. He's also amazed, but another implication here, that God has given humanity so much responsibility, that God has given man the opportunity to steward his creation. Look at verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heaven and fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. David is like, I can't take any more. It's not enough that we matter to God, that he cares for us, but he's actually given us dominion and stewardship over the created world. Isn't that what happens in Genesis? God creates Adam and Eve in his image. You say, what does that mean? Well, just let the text define it. Have dominion over creation. In other words, here's what it means. I need three hours. It means this. Adam and Eve, I've given you small s, sovereign reign over all that I've created. It's underneath your control. Here's the deal. How you rule that, how you steward that reflects me. Meaning, 
when the world looks at Adam and Eve, they're going to see what God is like. Their image bearers. That has profound implications for your life. I'm going to ask you just a few questions. God has given you a job. I'm not asking if you like the job. I'm not asking if you like who you work with. I don't care how much of a jerk your boss is. Has God given you a job? The question is, do you work hard at that job? Laziness is a God problem. Because God has entrusted with you, to you, a responsibility. Treating that flippantly is a glory issue. How many of you are in school? You don't have to raise your hand. You're in college. You're at the master's level. You're in high school. You're in middle school. How do you treat homework? Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't go on to meddling now. God has, I don't care if you like your school. I don't care if you like the subject. I don't care about your teacher. God has entrusted with you at this season of your life responsibility. The fact that you treat that flippantly is a glory issue. What about your finances? Is it managed for the kingdom of God to give Him glory? Or is it managed for the kingdom of self? Because if your finances are in complete disarray, that's a glory issue. God has entrusted to you possessions and money to steward to the glory of God. I'll give you one more because now I'm in big trouble. I can already hear the emails in my inbox piling up right now. How do things look around the home? Let me tell you about a conversation I had with my son. Dead serious. I had a conversation with my son just this past week. I said, son, in all of our home, I have entrusted to you one room. <laughs> I wasn't even trying to be funny, but I'm glad you find that funny. <laughs> I've entrusted to you one room. How that room looks says something about you. It has been given for you to steward and take care of. You say... You're just trying to work in theology to make your son clean his room. No, that's Genesis 1 in real life. What has God entrusted to you and how are you caring for it? That is why in the parable of the talents when the master comes home and the one servant took what he was entrusted with, what he was responsible for, and he buried it in the ground. Do you remember what the master did? He said, oh, well, that's okay. It's no problem. We'll still hang it on the refrigerator. And No, he said he's outraged because the servant didn't take his responsibility seriously. Janitor, CEO, pastor, Stay-at-home mom, parents, grandparents, image-bearing is stewarding to and for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Amen? Amen? You ought to be amazed that God has even entrusted you with what He's entrusted you with. Because you don't deserve a zip! But in His grace, He's given you much, even if you think you have little. And why has He given it to you? To have dominion over it. How majestic is His name in all the earth? Are you kidding me? This God who created it all loves me. And He not only loves me, He's entrusted to me all these things to be used to say, glory, 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 glory to God. 
And if you're honest, your response to that is the same as my response. I have totally fallen short of that. If I did an honest inventory of my life about finances and family and relationships and the things that God has entrusted with me, I'm completely honest before you as your pastor. I have messed some of that stuff up before. I mess it up even still. I am not the faithful steward that God wants me to be. Anybody with me? You don't have to raise your hand or point them out. Just Can we all just agree <laughs> that we all struggle with, with faithfully stewarding what God has entrusted to us? Sounds like Genesis. Not Genesis 1, Genesis 3. In fact, listen to how the writer of Hebrews applies Psalm 8. This is awesome. You ready? Psalm, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 2, verse 6. Here's what it says. It's been testified somewhere, Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels or lower than God and made him human. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. That's Psalm 8, Genesis 1. And then notice what he says. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. In other words, when you look at humanity, you don't see humanity acting the way humanity is supposed to act. Anybody with me? Humanity is not, Psalm 8, exercising proper dominion and stewardship over what they've been entrusted with. We've just admitted that personally, but wouldn't we also acknowledge that collectively? Has humanity done some good things? Absolutely. We've built roads and bridges and hospitals. We've built cities. We've cured diseases. We do heart transplants where we save lives. We care for the poor. We help out our fellow man. There is no doubt that humanity has done some good things. The, the image of God is still there at glimmers. But wouldn't we also say that there have been some terrible things done in humanity? Things like pollution. Things like causing animals to go extinct. Things like murdering one another committing all, ki all kinds of crimes against one another, what we would say, I think we would logically conclude, as the writer of Hebrews does, that we personally and collectively have all fallen short of the glory of God. So here's the flow of Psalm 8. God created this. It's so awesome. And God loves you. You're so significant to Him because you bear His image. And He has entrusted all this to you. But the answer ultimately is we've screwed it up. And that's how Psalm 8 ends. So let's pray. I'm kidding. That's a terrible way to end. <laughs> Some of you are like bowing your head. I'm going to go home and kick my dog or do something, you know what I mean? 
Aren't you glad the good news doesn't stop here? In fact, the writer of Hebrews in verse 9, the very next verse, shows us where hope is found. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, but, that is, we don't see humanity acting the way humanity is supposed to act, but here's what we do see. Him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That is, he was made lower than God. You say, that sounds funny. It's Philippians 2 language. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of, but what happened? He became a man. And what did Jesus do? He was crowned with glory and honor. How? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You want your minds blown? I'm about to come off this stage. Do you want to, you want something that will absolutely leave you speechless, cause your jaw to hit, hit the ground? It's not how amazing creation is. It's not even how amazing it is that God loves you. It's not look at all the responsibility. It's, he's given you. It's the fact that even though we screwed it all up, God, the creator of heaven and earth, came in the person of Jesus Christ to our planet, in our world, died on the cross for our sin so that he could restore us and bring us back to the right. That is astounding. I'm about to sweat up here. (laughs) Some of you Christians have been sitting in these seats for so long that the incarnation is ho-hum. It's Christmas decorations. I'll tell you what it is. It's mind-blowing. And if it doesn't cause you to stand in awe and wonder, speechless, you don't understand it. The fulfillment of Psalm 8 won't be found in you. It is found in Jesus Christ. We look around us and we see disorder, but in Jesus we find restoration. He's the only one that can take you back to what it means to be human. Let me tell you how Paul puts it. If any man is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. You think Paul was like, I need a really good illustration. Moon and the stars. I know, new creation. Do you know what he's saying? The reconstruction project of the entire universe has already started in your life. And he who began that work will complete it. But only Jesus can turn it around. You see, the gospel in Psalm 8 is amazing creation, amazing love, amazing responsibility, but total devastation because of sin. Insert amazing grace. It's just astounding. So I want you to do five things for me. And I'm going to go speed of light. Five things I want you to do for me to walk away from this text. Number one is this. Worship God. You must 
take time to sing songs of glory. Go up north. Just not on Sunday. Whatever, you know. Go up north. Look at the trees and just stand in awe of God. Number two, respect the image of God. Be careful how you speak about people. Be careful about how you think about other people in your heart. They are image bearers regardless of who they are. Number three, and this is to any of the skeptics in the room, I would ask you to understand the necessity of God. Please think through the logical implications of what you believe. That life without God means no meaning. Number four, live to the glory of God. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to wake up every morning with a sense of glory. That wh wh however mundane you feel your day is going to be, that you see glory in that when you're sweeping the floor and when you're driving in traffic on 35. See your life as a song of glory throughout your mundane day. And number five is receive the salvation of God. It is clear, according to the Bible, that only Jesus can fulfill Psalm 8 for you. And let me tell you this, dear friend. It may be funny to stand before Mount Rushmore and not see a designer. It may be irrational to look at all creation and not behold a Creator. But it is a galactic mistake to stand before the cross and not see a Savior. Behold the glory of Jesus. Sing a song, a new song in your life. Let me tell you how it goes. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us that sense of glory, of wonder, of, of being amazed at majesty. But more than creation, and even more than your love, and even more of all the things that you've given us, those really are astounding things. But what's more astounding than them all is that you would come to us, that you would enter in to restore us. I pray that we are speechless today about the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's worship in Jesus' name. Amen.